0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Ephesians 5 is where you need to be and you need to have like a thumb in or a piece of paper in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Both of those two places are going to serve you this morning. We are in a set of sermons called Prayers for the Future of Stonegate, just outlining vision and values of of our church, and then um, asking you to pray for that for our church family and our future. And so it's, it's interesting when I think back about the, the call to plant a church. I feel like there was a, a course of time over the course of several years that God was planting in me the fact that he wanted me to plant a church. And at the same time that he was, he was doing that sort of a thing in me, he was also planting in me some unique things and giving me a picture of what that church should look like down the road. And, and so it's just interesting to look back on how there was a couple of moments that happened uh, kind of in the, the formative years that led up to planting Stonegate, where God just started to plant some things in me that were just simmering. It didn't really have an outlet at that point yet, but were just simmering that I knew that when Stonegate began to take shape, that these things would be really influential, that I knew that God was going to want me to weave these things into the fabric of our church. And so as Stonegate took shape, we began to develop a vocabulary where we called these things distinctives. They're just flavorings of Stonegate, things that that really early on, we knew that God was asking us to plant in our place, almost like DNA in a place, that to weave into the fabric of what our place is and and the life of Stonegate, the culture and the atmosphere of our church. And so I want to give one morning to, to address one of these distinctives that goes like this. The distinctive is, everything begins in the family, That everything begins in the family. It's simply an expression that that we as a church want to be a place that pulls the family together. That doesn't push the family apart. That we want to be a church that calls men to become great pastors in the context of their family. That we want to be a place that does that. That calls men towards that. That preaches and pushes toward that. So, So it's just an expression that disciple making, the big picture goal of our church, really begins in the home, in our marriages, within our families, that everything begins in the family. Okay, so with that said, I need to preface um, something to our ladies and then I'm gonna get after the men. Uh, So to the ladies, this morning is gonna be uh, directed most squarely at the men in the room. Okay, now I want you to hear my heart and why I think it's important that we have some mornings like this at Stonegate. When, When we preach like this to men today, I feel like it's one of the greatest ways that I can actually serve you as a lady and as a woman at our church. And so if you are a married woman here, chances are you would love to have your man pastoring and shepherding you well. Loving Jesus, loving you well. Chances are you want that. We want that for him and we want that for you. And so mornings like this are really crucial for us to be able to talk squarely to your man in an effort to get him there, praying that God would use mornings like this for his good and and your good in that. And if you're single in the room, if you're a single lady, chances are you want to get married someday and chances are you want to have a man who loves Jesus and who will shepherd you well, amen? Probably want that. And so if you want that, you're gonna have to allow us some mornings where we really preach hard and press hard on our single men to actually become that. To step out of like boyhood and adolescence and into adulthood and maturity. So you're going to have to give us mornings. You have to be patient with us as we really preach hard towards our guys in that way. And so mornings like this are an effort for us to serve you by preaching hard to your man. Okay, so with that said, uh, to the men, uh, I want to start like this. Um, I'm going to ask you to picture a moment in your future. It's going to be a little bit awkward. Uh, But I want to ask you to picture a moment in your future, and especially if you're single, it's going to be awkward because you're going to have to imagine yourself as being married, having kids, and dying. And so I want you to picture the moment where you have died and you are in a casket. And there's a, a small group of people that have gathered in a room and it's your funeral that you're looking at. And all of a sudden, your wife stands up out of that crowd and she comes around to the stage And she stands in front of a mic and she is about to open her mouth and try to honor you, her husband, with some words. Now, men in the room, I want you to think about this. In that moment, what is it that you want your wife to be able to say? What is it that you want coming out of her mouth? And and I'll just tell you for me, here's, here's what I don't care about in that moment. I I could not care less about anything she might say about Stonegate, about how good or bad I wasn't as a pastor in our church. I I don't care if she says anything about um, how well I preached or how well I led. Do you know what I want Laura to be able to say in that moment on that day? Is I want her to be able to look at a group of people and to say something like this. If I had life to do all over again... I mean, if I could make the decision, you know, now it's like 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago to marry Rodney again, I would gladly and happily say yes to that. I would want that. I mean, if I could go back to being 22, 23, 24, when we met, when we were courting, when we were leading up to all of that, if I could go back to that, I would say yes all over again. I I would do all of this again. Okay, now I want you to picture your wife sitting down and all of a sudden your kids stand up and your kids come up to the microphone and they're about to open their mouth to try to honor their dad. What is it that you'd like for them to say? I could could not care less if my kids mention Stonegate, if my kids mention preaching, pastoring in our church. I could not care. You know what I want my kids to be able to say? That that man right there was a man of God. And he played the most influential role in my life for Jesus. That's what I want them to be able to say. I want Hannah to be able to say that. I want Caleb to be able to say that. I want Eva to be able to say that. I want my kids to, to, to know and, and see and believe. I, the most influential earthly person in their life that led them to Jesus is right there. And so here's the thing, men, if we want to be able to say that someday, we want if we want our wives to be able to say that, our kids to be able to say that, if we want like a God-honoring life, a God-honoring marriage, a God-honoring house where our kids could actually honestly say something like that, it's going to require us to start asking some hard questions now. It's going to require us to ask some questions about the habits in our life about how we're pursuing our kids, how we're pursuing our wife, how we're cherishing our kids, how we're cherishing our wives. It's going to have, we're going to have to ask some hard questions about that. And Paul's about to help here. So that's going to get us into Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Paul starts it out like this in verse 22. One of the best sections on marriage and family and parenting in the entire Bible. Um, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, Paul says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Two things, we could talk a long time about these couple of verses here, but two things I want you to see. Number one is that marriage is intended by God to be a metaphor of the gospel. That, that, that marriage, this whole thing of a man saying yes to a woman and a yes saying yes to the man, that whole thing is intended by God to be a living, breathing picture of how Jesus loves and pursues the church and how the church responds to Jesus. That's what your marriage is intended by God to do. So your marriage is not primarily for you and your enjoyment or happiness, although I hope you get plenty out of it. It is primarily meant for God to be a walking billboard for the gospel. That this is, this is a picture of the unbreakable covenant union between Christ and his church. That's what your marriage is for. But secondly, I want you to see this. That if you're a man in the room, and specifically if you're a married man in the room, that God has called you to lead this thing. God's called you to lead it. So like when, when, when you signed up for marriage, when you slid that ring on the finger and you said, I do, you didn't just sign up to be a husband. You signed up to be a head. You signed up to be a leader. This is our terminology. You signed up to be a pastor in your home. See, when you got married, here's what happened. God looked at you and said, hey, I'm giving you a church now. It's a really small church. It's you and your wife. You've got a two-person church. But, but I'm calling you to, I'm entrusting you with this church. I'm calling you to be the pastor or the shepherd of that small little church. See, when, when you signed up for marriage, you signed up as a husband to be a pastor for your family, specifically for your wife, that you are not just husband. You are a pastor who is a husband. This is the, the role, the calling God has put on you. Now, if we're honest around the room, here's the truth for most men. We have no idea as to what that looks like. So Paul's going to help. Verse 25, how do we do this? Paul says this, husbands, okay, if you're going to be the head, if you're going to be a pastor, this is what it looks like. Husbands, love your wives Love your wife. That's what it looks like to be a good pastor, is you love your wife. This is the one command in the passage, that in the context of this covenant union, this is the call God has put on you if you're a man. You are to love your wife. That's the command, love your wife. The question is, what is the standard? How do we love our wife? What does love of our wife look like? He goes on to clarify. How do you love your wife? As Christ loved the church. That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? Yes, that, that's a true statement. That is a high bar. You know what he's saying? That, that your standard in your marriage, the standard for how you love your wife is not how your dad loved your mom. Some of you had great pictures of that. Some of you had terrible pictures of that. But here's the, the, at the end game. It doesn't matter because that's not your standard. He doesn't say in here, um, hey, love your wives as your friends love their wife. It doesn't matter how your friends are loving their wife. He says, you love your wife, how? As Christ loved the church. That's the standard. That's the bar. That's what we're shooting for. But when we're talking about pastoring in the context of your house, we are talking about loving your wife as Christ loved his church. That's the standard. You you love your bride as Christ loved his bride, you. You. This is how we're supposed to love our wife. Now I want to give you five um, statements that will help give some body and build out what it means to to love our wives this way as Christ loved the church. So so how does Jesus love the church? How does Jesus love his bride? Here's the first thing we could say about that. Is that Jesus initiated. He has an initiating love. He initiated with us. So if you're a Christian in the room, it's really important that you know this. Do you know why you're a Christian? Because God initiated with you. That's why you're a Christian. Because God ran you down. See, you know why, do you know why grace is so remarkable? It's because it's a response to your rebellion and hard-heartedness toward God. That's what makes grace so amazing. Is you didn't earn it. As a matter of fact, you did everything you could to like not deserve it. To like demerit it. You didn't, you didn't earn it and you don't deserve it, but God initiated it. He came after you. He pursued you, even in your rebellion. This is the sort of initiating love of God towards you. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God initiated. God, God melted your heart, your hard heart with the heat of initiating love. This is 1 John four nineteen. That, that we didn't love first, that Jesus first loved us. That's why we can love. So he is an initiator. So because Jesus initiated with us, here's what that means in the context of marriage for men. That means that we are to initiate with our wives. That we're to be the initiators with our wife. That that in our marriage, if you're a man in the room, that you are the one that is supposed to start things and initiate things. That, That you're the one that's supposed to take the first step. You know when there's distance between you and your wife? You know that moment? It's you taking the first step. You know when there's conflict that's not resolved? It's you taking the first step. You know when there's a problem that's recognized? It's you taking the initiative. You taking the first step. You initiating that same sort of initiating love that Jesus has loved you with. You, you turning that and responding to your wife in the same sort of a way. And let me just clarify this that when we say that Jesus initiated with us, so now we can initiate with our wife, we are saying that Jesus's love toward us is not only the model of our love toward our wife, but it's the motivator of our love toward our wife. That it's when we see that God has initiated with us, like when we feel that deep in our bones, that we can start initiating with our wife. Now, all of that sounds pretty simple, But I'm just amazed at how seldom that plays itself out. See, a lot of us get trapped in our marriages into just a self-centered downward spiral. So so this is what a lot of our marriages look like. Our wife didn't give us something we wanted, so we don't give her something she wants. And the next time she wants something, or or she knows that we want something, she she doesn't give us what we want because we didn't give her what, what she wanted. And then the next time that, that we know she wants something, we, we don't initiate, we don't give her what, what she wants because she didn't give us what, what, she, what we wanted. And we get in this downward spiral of, well, they didn't do it, so we're not gonna do it. They didn't initiate, so we're not gonna initiate. They didn't take a step toward us, so we're not gonna take a step toward them. And men, here's, here's what I'm saying in this. It is always, always, always your responsibility to break that cycle. In other words, your initiating love toward them is not dependent upon their love of you. There's not like an exception clause in any of this. There's not like a love her as, as Christ loved the church unless she doesn't take the first step toward you. That doesn't exist. It is you initiate regardless. You take the first step regardless. See, and, and here's, here's the key in all this. It's Jesus as model and motivator. We can live in this demand of Jesus to initiate when we start to see that Jesus has done for us what he demands of us. That that Jesus loved us and initiated with us when we were unlovable. And when you feel that deep in your bones, you know what that's gonna unleash and empower you to be able to do to your wife? Love her when she's not lovable. And she's gonna be there at some point, just like you're gonna be there at some point. But when you see that that God through Jesus has loved you when you're unlovable, it's going to allow you, it's going to fuel and motivate you to initiate toward your wife, to take the first step toward your wife when she is unlovable. That, That Jesus, he initiates with us so we can initiate with our wife. So let me just push pause here and ask the question. Men, would this describe you in your marriage? Are you the initiator? When things need to be done, do you initiate that these things need to be done? When you see a problem in your marriage, are you apathetic toward that? Or do you initiate, let's get some resolution. Let's start to work through this. Are you the initiator? Is it a you taking the first step? Is it you breaking the downward spiral? Are you an initiator? Here's number two. Number one, Jesus initiated with us so we can initiate with our wife. Number two, is Jesus gave to us Jesus gave to us, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here's a description of how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you want to know how Jesus has loved the church, here's a great description. He gave himself up for his bride. Now just think about in the context of of Jesus here, what Jesus gave up for your salvation. What Jesus gave up to love you. So so we could talk about heaven, that Jesus gave up heaven so so he could love you. We could talk about the fact that in heaven, Jesus was revered and respected as God, as the creator of the universe, as a savior. We could talk about him giving up all of those things. And and what did he get by giving all those up? He got the confines of earth, straps on human flesh, all the limitations that come around that. He, He felt a fist smash into his face. That's what he got. That's what he signed up for. To love you, that's what he got. He got a cross to love you. He he gave up his life to love you. Are you getting that? See, Jesus gave up a lot to love you, amen? He gave up everything to love you, his life to love you. And and here's what Paul is saying. Because Jesus gave up everything to love you, husband, you can now give up everything to love and serve your wife. That the part of a calling on a man's life Part of what it means to pastor your family is that you proactively give your life away to them. See, if you want to know what marriage is, it is giving your life away to your family. That's what it is. It is a self-sacrificing deal for a husband. It It is a giving deal for a husband. And single ladies in the room, if you want to know the difference between a boy and a man, See, so when you start thinking about who you're going to who, who allow to pursue you, all of that, th- these words might save your life here. If you want to know the difference between a boy and a man, here, here's how a boy thinks about life. A boy thinks about life like this. All the people in his life, the relationships in his life, everything is viewed from this posture. What can I get from these people? Here's how a man thinks about life, about marriage, about you. He, he asks this question, how can I give to this person? See, that's the question that a man needs to be asking if they're going to date you, if they're going to court you, pursue you. Don't ruin your life by marrying a boy. You, you need to say that for a man. In and, and, and marriage, husbands, you need to ask yourself the question, is my posture towards my wife, towards my marriage, a what can I get out of this thing? Or is it a turn towards other people? How can I give my life away for the good of these people? My, my wife, my kids. See, everyone wants to talk about leadership and headship until it actually requires self-sacrifice. And and men, here's what you signed up for as a head, as the pastor of your home, is a lot of self-sacrifice. Giving away, putting a lot of things down. See, when you say yes to your wife, you're saying no to a million other things. For instance, hobbies. You're saying no to a lot of hobbies. See, you're saying no to everything in your life that rips at and pulls, has a tendency to pull your marriage apart. Everything that fits in that category is a no. See, there's a lot of men who really think becoming a scratch golfer is more important than having a good marriage. That's a terrible trade. There's a lot of men who think playing fantasy football is more important than their marriage. A horrible trade. There's a lot of men who thinking working more so they can earn more, is worth their marriage. Terrible trade. See, there's a lot of things when you say yes to your wife that you are saying no to from then on. So you can protect your marriage. So you can protect your wife. See, it is a giving issue. And let me just talk real quickly here about one thing that if you're a man in the room and you are married, this is one of the most precious things you can give your wife. One of the best things you can put down, one of the most precious gifts you can give is personal purity, your purity. One of the things that that men in the room, you're married, you need to put down is impurity. In other words, you need to put down being the flirtatious guy. You need to put down being the download pornography guy. You need to put down having like roaming eyes guys. You, You need to put down all of those things. You need to put those things down. Like those no longer exist in you. Like those things are actively fought against. You you need to put down the, I'll leave like nine options open with other ladies over here just in case this doesn't work out thing. See, all of that dies when you become a married man, when you become a pastor in your family. All of that dies. See, we're talking about like a 1 Timothy 3 thing here of being a one woman man, having eyes for your wife, having a heart for your wife, saying no to, to everything else. And this is how I feel about Laura and, I, and our marriage. I want Laura to not just know that I love her, that I am for her and only her. I want her to feel that. Like I want her to actually feel that I am for her, not just know it. So, so in our house, that means we don't have movie channels because I'm trying to communicate to her, I am for you and anything that might not be For me, being for you, I'm against it. We we don't have it. And so part of being for Laura in personal purity means that there is no such thing as privacy in my life. There is no such thing as that. I don't have anything in my life that's private. And if you're a man in here that has private things, like your phone is private, your email is private, that is a bad mistake. See, one of the things you need to give up so your wife can actually feel that you are for her and love her is your privacy. So my phone stays out in in, in the open all the time. Laura can get my phone at any point, check any text message, any call, any message that's left on my phone. My computer, she can grab it at any time to check anything she wants to check on there. There is no such thing as privacy in my life. No such thing. I don't have privacy. Because I want my, my wife to feel the fact that I really love her. I'm for her. So we're talking here about giving life away to your wife. So men, I want you to look at me in the face here. Is your marriage about you or is it for your wife? What, what, what is it about? Is it about what you can get Or is it about what you are giving to the people around you? Would this characterize the way you love your wife? As a giving person. As a giving person. Giving away life to to kids, to to wife. Would that characterize the way that you love in the context of your marriage? Number three. Number three is Jesus' love sanctifies us. Look at verse 26 that he might sanctify her, his bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here's what Paul's saying. That the gospel gets even better than, than Jesus loving you when you were unlovable. That Jesus initiating when you were, didn't want it. It gets even better than that. It gets even better than Jesus giving his life away for you. It goes even to the point where after Jesus saves you, redeems you, he actually keeps on pursuing you, keeps on running after you and sanctifying you. Like like he actually has a love for you that doesn't stop once he's got you. It's actually this love for you that when he saves you, he actually keeps working in your life, keeps working for your life to sanctify you. Maybe I could say it this way. Christ didn't just marry you, the church. He actually now has determined and pledged himself to make you Christ-like. Are you seeing that? That it didn't stop with him saving you. It goes on to him sanctifying you. That he's actually now working for your good, pressing you into his image. That he's, he's got a love that sanctifies, that's growing you. So in the same way, because Jesus's love sanctifies us, So we sanctify our wives. Now, I want to be clear in what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you play the role of Jesus in your wife's life, but I am saying this. As a husband, you have been entrusted with God to play the primary earthly role in the sanctification of your wife, in the Christ-likeness of your wife. You have been entrusted by God to play the primary role in that. Let me say it this way. I'm not called by God to be the primary pastor for your wife. Beth Moore is definitely not called by God to be the primary pastor of your wife. You, husband, are called to be the primary pastor of your wife. You are. You're called to be the primary earthly figure in her life that moves her, that that sanctifies her, that makes her more like Jesus. That is your role. God has entrusted that to you, to shepherd and pastor her in that sort of a way. I recently was listening to a guy talk to a room full of church planters and their wives. And there was this interesting moment in in the middle of what he was saying, where he looked at the room full of church planters, people who wanted to plant a church someday. And he looked at them and said, uh, you know, I, I really think that in this room today, There are many ladies, wives, who are spiritual widows in the room. That their husbands are there physically, but emotionally and spiritually, they are far gone. And I just wonder how how that would apply and settle over this room. How many spiritual widows we have here? Men who, I mean, good guys, work hard, provide physically for their family. But when it comes to the emotional needs of their family, are totally disconnected. When it comes to the spiritual environment and atmosphere of their family, totally, I mean, just disconnected from it. Just allowing their their wives to be widows spiritually. Men, you have been called by God to play the primary role in their sanctification, which means they, they cannot be spiritual widows which means you have been entrusted by being a good pastor, walking beside them. So so let me just ask questions like this. Do you and your wife talk about Jesus? Like y'all actually have conversations about God. You pray with one another, pray for one another. Like you know the deepest aches in your wife's heart. You know her deepest fears. You know her deepest struggles. That you know your woman like that. That you know her, her soul. That you're actually caring for her soul this is what pastoring looks like that you're not disconnected from that that you're not removed from spiritual things that you are actively engaged in that and men i I think this is just a warning and, and hopefully will be used for your good to hear this the level of the love of god in your home is not going to rise past you over the long haul it's going to reflect you So the level of the love of God in your home is not going to rise past you. It is going to reflect you. And that doesn't mean you have to be like seminary man, know everything guy. It means that you actually need to have a heart that is pursuing God, loves God, is growing, and can initiate that with everyone in your family. So let me ask you the question, men in the room. Do you see your role in your wife's life as the primary earthly means for her sanctification? I mean, do you see that? That you're the primary means of that. It's not me. It's not anyone else. That is your role. Do you see that? That what your wife knows about God, knows about the purpose of their life, that should come from you, that that you should be having these sort of conversations So Jesus sanctifies us, so we get to play this primary role in sanctifying our ladies. And number four, that Jesus pursued us. Look at verse 28. Jesus pursued us in the same way husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but I love these two words, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. He's saying that Christ actually does those things, nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. Isn't it amazing to think about that God didn't just pursue us, win us over and marry us and then leave us to ourself, but for the rest of our life, Jesus comes after us with pursuing love. Men, let let me rephrase that one more time to the men in the room. Jesus didn't just marry you, didn't just spend all this time wooing you and drawing you in and winning your heart and marrying you. He also, for the rest of your life, pursues and cherishes you. And because of that, here's what we get to do. Jesus pursued us so we get to pursue our wife. Jesus is the model and the motivator. Because Jesus has pursued us, we get to turn that pursuit around. And for the rest of our wives' life, we get to be a person who pursues and cherishes her. Can I just tell you what can be one of the things that will kill your marriage over the long haul? This has the potential to kill your marriage. It's for you to turn your marriage on cruise control. For you to turn on cruise control, just doing the thing, just just not paying attention, not nourishing, not cherishing, not pursuing, not running after, just on cruise control. Um, I've got a pastor friend that planted a church about ten years ago, and uh, great guy. His church just was busting at the seams. It did wonderful. And about 11 years into their marriage, he, he's, he's got it on cruise control. He's thinking the marriage is great. There's no major problem, so we're all fine. My, my wife isn't complaining about much, so we must be doing okay. Well, 11 years into their marriage, um, he finds his wife in front of him in a, just a puddle of tears. And, uh, and I want you to hear what, what she says here. She goes on to confess um, what, uh, a thing that happened the previous Sunday morning. And on the previous Sunday morning, she was leaving church and, uh, you know, two or three kids in tow, just kids are beating her down. Just a really, really difficult morning. She's walking out of church and one of the greeters at the front door just recognized that. And he did nothing inappropriate. All he does is recognize that there is a lady who obviously needs some help. So he runs over to her and says, can I, can I help you? You look like you need it. Let me help. So he helps with the kids. He actually opens the door for the kids. Puts the kids in. Put, puts them in their seat. Closes the door. Opens the door for the pastor's wife. She, she gets in the, the, the car. He, he, before he closes, it, he just says, I, it's great to see you today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Closes the door. Now, this is later that week. The pastor's wife is looking at him in a puddle of tears. And, and I want you to hear what she says. She says, I will never leave you. I'm not going to cheat on you, but I want you to hear this. That felt so good. I was actually noticed by another man. Now, husbands in the room, here's my question. Does it have to get to that? I mean, do we have to go there To to like wake us up, to like God has given us this beautiful wife to nourish and to cherish and to pursue and to initiate with. So I think a lot of our marriages right now, like seriously, right now in the room, we are on cruise control. And your wife might not have said, We've got a serious problem. It can't go on like this, but she's thinking it. And here's what is needed with a lot of men in the room right now. Like this is an us thing that we need to start pursuing and cherishing and initiating to our wives in such a way that we can actually re-win their hearts back. I mean, think back to your dating days and the stupid things you did to try to win her over. Like nine hour conversations on the phone. I mean, we could go down the list here, right? And I'm saying this, That if we're not initiating and pursuing and cherishing, then we're not living in Ephesians 5 and how God has initiated and cherished and pursues us. And that is sin that needs to be repented of. That's not okay. It's not okay to take your wife for granted. It's not okay to not cherish your wife. And listen, we don't want them to just know that we love them. We want them to feel cherished. We want them to feel that, like deep in their soul to know that my man loves me with like a a love that is deep and big and wide to feel that. So, So can I just ask guys in the room, are you pursuing your wife? And if the answer to that is no, then that means repentance needs to be had desperately this morning it needs to be there like today. It can't wait till tomorrow, till next week, till next month. Like today, we need to be repenting of that so we can start pursuing her. So husbands are pastors. Ephesians 6. We're about to see the the next thing that Paul does here. And we're going to hustle through this. Ephesians 6. Paul goes on to say this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And look at verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Here's what Paul is saying. In Ephesians 5, it's husbands, you are pastors. In Ephesians 6, it's parents, you've got kids. Parents, fathers, you are pastors. To your kids, you're their pastor. Parenting is pastoring. Now, in this passage, I think it's just interesting that Paul does not say parents. Paul does not say men and women. And I I, want to just clarify that both of that would apply. For men and women, parenting is pastoring. My wife is doing a wonderful job in shaping our hearts the, the hearts of our kids to know and love Jesus. She is doing an awesome job at that. But Paul here in this passage is wanting to zero in on fathers and men and and, and dads. And he wants them to feel the weight of what he's saying here. And so I wanna make sure I'm faithful to that. And I, I'm gonna to talk to men a little bit more here. And, and I want men to feel the weight of what Paul's saying. That, that men, if you're a dad in the room, God has called you to be a pastor to your kids. That God has called you to that, to be a pastor, to be a parent who shepherds the heart of his kids. So the question becomes, what does it look like to pastor with our kids, in our family? And I'm going to just talk three things really quickly here. Three things that Paul gives us here. Number one, he says, bring them up. You see that? Bring them up. Daddies, this is your responsibility to bring your kids up, not just physically, who are physically, they're mature people, but emotionally and spiritually, your job entrusted to you by God to pastor your kids and to bring them up, to, to grow them in that way. Dads, maybe you could think of it this way. Before your kids know about God as father, they're gonna know you as father. Long before they know God as father, they're gonna know you as father. And what they know and see about you as father is going to be one of the primary shapers in how they see and relate to God as father. Now just let that settle over us for a second. Long before your kids are going to know God as father, they're going to know you as father in their life. And what they know and see in you as their earthly father is going to be a primary shaper in how they view God as their heavenly father. Salem, think on that. Do you see the sort of weighty responsibility that God has given you here? I mean, do you see that? That, that Dad, and I'm going to speak to you on this, that you are going to be the most important spiritual influence for your kids, that you are. Before they know God as father, they're going to see you as father. And, and what they see about you as father is going to shape how they view God as father. So it's our role to bring them up in such a way that they have proper thoughts about God, that what they see in us is then reflected upon God. For, for, that, for that connection to be there and be appropriate, the word to bring them up. And secondly, th- this idea of bring them up is the same word used, the Greek word behind bring them up, is the same word used in chapter 5, verse 29, for nourishment, nourishes. And that is an affectionate term, an endearing term. And dad, that, that means that we have to cultivate endearment and affection between us and our kids. There are way too many sons and daughters when they think about their dad, they think hard thoughts about their dad, way too many. And dads, we have to be proactive in cultivating a softness between us and our kids. My dad, uh, we lived in a rural town in Oklahoma, and uh, there was one summer in particular that I can think of where my dad two or three times a week would get up like way before like timing to go to work. He'd go to work at nine. We'd be up at 5.30, six o'clock. He would take me fishing for several hours. He'd get back just in time to, to make it back to work. And that summer we caught like 2000 crappie. It was unbelievable. My dad is still like my hero on the lake. I mean, that, it's unbelievable what he can do out there. But can I just say what he was doing? He was cultivating affection between he and I. And that's I don't know what that looks like between you and your kids, but you have to do that. When I think about my dad now, this is years later, been out of the house for years now. Can I just tell you how I think about him with such tender and affectionate thoughts? Like my heart melts when I think about my dad. And you're gonna have to pursue that, run after that, work for that. That means if you've got a daughter and they like Cinderella, that you make some hot cocoa, you get on the couch and you watch Cinderella. You don't have to like Cinderella. You just have to love your girl. That's all you have to do. And if you've got a boy and they like skateboarding, of all things, Caleb, please, not that. If they like skateboarding, you know what that means? You get a skateboard, and you get a helmet the whole thing. And, and, and listen, you don't have to like skateboarding. All you have to do is love your kid. That's it. See, bringing them up means that you are cultivating affection. So we bring them up. Here, and he's going to give two kind of qualifications for what it looks like to bring a kid up, what it looks like to bring them up to spiritual maturity. And he, he gives us two things to help us here. Number one, you see this in verse four? He says, through discipline, that we bring them up in discipline. Can you imagine if when babies were born, they were full grown? Can you imagine that? Now, I want you to think about a little baby. Think about a little baby. I know it's awkward in like every sense of the, the uh, yeah. But, but think about a little baby for a second. Think about how self-centered they are. Think about this. Seriously, how self-centered a baby is. 3 a.m., they're hungry, you're sleeping, it doesn't matter. They just start crying. And they're gonna cry until you come in and do something about it. And they are so self-centered. I mean, think this is ridiculous. Think about this. They want the food positioned in their mouth where the only thing they have to do is suck to eat it. That, that is the life of a kid when they're born. They're gonna dirty their diaper. And who's gonna come along and clean that up? Not them. You are. Okay, now think about this. Now, now listen, that heart that is all about them doesn't just go away that has, has to be corrected in them and disciplined out of them so are you seeing that the discipline is massively important or you're going to have 30 year old babies on your hands 40 year old babies on your hands see when th- this is the reason discipline is so important When you teach your sons and daughters to immediately and joyfully follow your instruction, immediately and joyfully, not like after you raise your voice 19 times, immediately and joyfully following your instruction. You know what that's doing? It's teaching them how to immediately and joyfully follow God's instruction. Do you see what's hanging in the balance in your discipline? That you are teaching them how to respond to God. You are teaching them about what it looks like to live under the reign and rule of God. You are teaching them those things. See, it doesn't just go away. And so so let me just give you these words of advice. You better get after it and start early. Listen, this isn't like a how-to sermon on how to discipline. I'll just say it this way. You need to do it appropriately and you need to start like ASAP, like when they are born. The earlier, the better. You try to spank your 20-year-old and watch them laugh at you, right? That does not work. You've got to start early in this thing. This is why Proverbs says you need to train a kid up in the way that they'll go, a child up in the way they'll go. Training is over a long period of time. Training is not a 30-second thing. It's a lifelong endeavor to, to train them in the ways of God. So it's through discipline. But by you teaching them to immediately and joyfully follow your instruction— You are teaching them in the future to immediately and joyfully follow God's instruction. So, through discipline, we bring them up. And here's the second one it's through instruction. Through instruction. See, where discipline is mainly reactive to their bad behavior, instruction is mainly proactive. Instruction is proactively passing along a vision for God and a mission for your kid's life. Dads, that is what you've been entrusted to do. Do you know that? To pass along a vision for God and a mission for their life. That you've been called to instruct, to teach, to talk about God. You've been called to do that. Pass along a vision for God and a mission for their life. This is instruction. It's proactively teaching your kids about God. And let's go back to Deuteronomy 8. And I just want to read through this really quickly. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. And let me just read through this really quickly. Deuteronomy 6. As you're flipping there, you need to get this scene in your, in your mind. Um, Moses has just gone up onto the mountain and he has gotten the words of God. Like God has just spoken to Moses in such a way that he has given him written like the words of God on stones. And Moses is now coming down the mountain and he is about to speak what God has just spoken to him. And here's what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You, verse five, you, and we're going to use parent here, you parents shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. If you don't know where parenting starts, here's where it starts. You actually love Jesus. It's actually in your heart. You actually want God, love Jesus. This is where parenting starts. See, you cannot pass along to your kids something you don't possess, So if you want to pass these things along to your kids, you've actually got to love God. You've actually got to have a heart that is inflamed by God. So he goes on. So you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You need to to be that person. And then he says this in verse 7. You shall teach them. So these things I'm commanding you. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Can I just say what that doesn't say there? It doesn't say uh, you need to bring your kids to church so the pastors up there can teach your kids. It doesn't say, hey, you need to drop those off so Dan can teach them well. It doesn't say you need to drop them off so hey people up there in the kids' ministry, man, they will really make sure they're grounded well. It doesn't say that. It says that you, mom and dad, specifically dad this morning, that you have been entrusted with the responsibility to diligently teach your kids. That you are not only the primary disciple maker of your wife, but you are the primary disciple maker of your kids. That is your job, your role, entrusted to you by God. And listen, that is a privilege and a blessing. God has given you these little babies, these little kids, and he's saying, will you please just fashion them so they're going to be positioned well to know me and to love me and to live for me? I mean, can you imagine a bigger blessing that God could give a person? That you're the primary disciple maker of your kids. That it's you teach them diligently. And see, if you're not teaching them diligently, you know what you're saying? It's someone else's job. We'll we'll just let them them do that. We'll, We'll let the church do that. We'll let the neighbors do that. We'll let this guy do that. We'll let those people do that. It's you do that. God has entrusted that to you to disciple your kids. Dads, let me ask it this way. If we took away every other input into your kid's life, So not your wife's input, not your church's input. All of those other inputs are taken away. What would your kid know just from you about a vision of God and a mission for their life? What would their kids know? It's just you, what you've taught them, what what you've shown them in the Bible, what you've talked about with them, what you've discussed with them. Can I tell you what the answer should be to that? What what should your kids know, just your input? Can I tell you what, what it should be? They should know everything they need to know. Everything they need to know should be known if it was just your input. Everything they need to know should should be there. As a general rule, if dads, if you drop the ball in this area, as a general rule, proverbial wisdom, it doesn't matter how well our church partners with you in, in helping your kids grow to maturity. It doesn't matter. Chances are your kids are not going to be positioned well before God. Now let me give you the flip side of that. If you pick up this ball and do this well, can I tell you this? It doesn't matter how poorly of a job we do around here at partnering with you, your kids are going to be positioned perfectly to know God, to to hear from God, to live for God, to love God. Do, Do you feel that? You feel the weight of that? This is your role. God's put this in your lap to do this, to teach diligently your children. And then, then watch, it, watch the rest of this passage here and just watch how this flows. See, how we instantly start thinking is like this. Um, well, dang, I'm going to need like a seminary degree and some curriculum and everything else. No, you don't. Look at how simple, how bite-sized this is, how ordinary this sounds. This is what it looks like to teach them diligently. Keep going. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And, and here's how you do that. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Sort of sounds like dinner. That you're around the dinner table and you talk about Jesus. So here's how this, and I'll just give you a personalized, this is what it looks like for Laura and I. We pray before we eat. And we have, our kids are four, two, and one, so they're really young still. And so um, our prayer sounds like this, God is big, God is good, God is strong, God is love. It's just a simple prayer that's, that names some attributes of God so we can talk about God together as a family. And then, here's the second thing we do. We've got a uh, a book called Teaching Minds and Training Hearts. I think it's on the resource table. It's just an old catechism, a question and answer that's got great theology in it. So we'll ask the question, what's the primary purpose of man? And they'll answer it. To, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So they're just, we're just going over questions and answers. And with each one of those questions is a week-long devotional. So it's got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So we just read a paragraph and read a passage together. It's, it's nothing big. I, you don't have to go to seminary for that. You don't have to know anything for that. It's all right there. You just talk about Jesus with your family when you eat. That's all Paul's saying. At dinner time, talk about Jesus. And then he goes on. So you should talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. So this is as you go. This is when you're in the car. This is when you're playing catch. This is on your way to school. It's just as you go, you're talking about God. You're talking about Jesus. You're talking about gospel. You're talking about what you've learned lately. You're just conversing with your kids. So um, yesterday I took Hannah out on a date and uh, the normal stop on our dates is the donut shop. And so she walks up to the window yesterday and she says, Daddy, you see that pink donut? Yep. She said, I love pink donuts. <laughs> and I said, Hannah, I know you love pink donuts. That's why Daddy loves to buy you pink donuts. And, uh, and I said, Hannah, who made pink donuts? And she, we've been doing this long enough where she knows the answer to that now. Well, God made pink donuts. Well, yeah, God did make pink donuts. And if pink donuts are that good, how good do you think God is? It's just talking about Jesus. It's talking about God. It's not rocket science. It's just as you go talking about spiritual things. So it's, it's when you um, walk by the way. And then he says, when you lie down, sort of sounds like bedtime, doesn't it? It's talking about Jesus at bedtime. So this is what it looks like for us. We've got the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've got one book that will be the most beneficial $10 you spend all year, go out to the resource table, buy the Jesus Storybook Bible, especially if you have like school age or lower kids. Buy that. It'd be great for you. So we go in each night. We read a a story out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. We talk about it for a few minutes and then I pray over them. This is my routine. I don't know if you want to do it. It's kind of weird at first. I put my hands on my kids' heads. And the first time I did that, Hannah's like, oh, get your hand off. But listen, after like a couple of weeks, it's all normal. We're all good now. And so I put my hands on their head and I I just pray over them. I pray a blessing over them. I pray that God would grow them up to to know him and they would love him and want to live for him. That that one day that God would save them. That they would have big dreams and gospel-soaked ambitions for their life. Just praying that blessing over them every night. It's just as you're, as you're going at bedtime, you're, you're just talking about Jesus, talking about God to them. And, and then this last part, it says, and when you rise, Moses is just saying, it's everything you do. It's just incorporated into every part of your life. You're just talking about God. It saturates everything. And then look at verse eight and nine. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And here's what I think is happening in eight and nine. In verses 4 and 5, it is you need to love God deep inside of your bones, like deep in your heart. There should be a a deep and abiding love for God in you. And I think verse 8 and 9 is essentially saying this, that love of God that's inside of you should come out of you in a million ways. In other words, your kids should see you love God. Your kids should be able to look at daddy and know what it looks like to love and live for God. They should be able to look at dad and, and think that is what a man is. That is what loving Jesus looks like. That's what praying looks like. That's what reading the Bible looks like. That's what talking about the Bible and our family looks like. That's what all of these things look like. That your kids should be seeing you and seeing a picture of what it looks like to love and live for God. See what's inside of you comes out of you. That's what he's saying here. That there should be a million different ways that your kids are watching you and seeing what it looks like to, to, to love God. And dads, you can just take this idea to the bank that what your kids see in you, likely they're going to one day be. What your kids see, they're like, likely. Proverbial wisdom is going to say that one day they're going to be that. And they should see in their dad a heart that loves Jesus, wants Jesus, dreams about how to make an impact for Jesus. So let me end it with this. I've gone way too long today. So let let me close with this. Um, Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite guys in church history. And I love him. um, For one, God really used him to do remarkable things. But secondly, it's because his public life and his private life actually matched. Like he loved his family, was a great husband, was a great pastor to his kids. And dads, I want you to, to look up on the screen and read with me This quote from one of his daughters as she was probably in her teenage years. Listen to what what Esther, his daughter, said about him. Last eve, I had some free discourse with my father on on the great things that concerned my best interest. I opened my difficulties to him very freely, and he freely advised and directed. In other words, we're talking about my deep struggles, and my dad is the guy I want to talk to about that. He he knows about these things. She goes on. The conversation has removed some distressing doubts that discouraged me much in my Christian warfare. He gave me some excellent directions to be observed in secret that tend to keep my soul near to God, as well as others to be observed in a more public way. And then listen to what she says right here about her dad. What a mercy that I have such a father. Is there any dad in the room that wouldn't love for, for their daughter to look at them and say, what a mercy, what a mercy that God has given me my dad. What a grace that God has given me my dad. At 55, Jonathan Edwards died of a smallpox in, uh, vaccination. And when his wife got the news, she wrote this a journal entry, this letter to one of their daughters. So this is Sarah Edwards. His wife wrote this when she heard the news that Jonathan had died. To her daughter, Oh my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may all kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouth. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, Jonathan, so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. And we can just say there, what a special lady. I mean, that is some unique words from a lady who just found out her husband died. But listen to what she goes on to say. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. Who in here wouldn't want their wife to someday be able to say to their kids when you die? What a legacy my dad, your father, right, has left us. What a legacy that this man, what a blessing, what a grace from God. You know what she's really saying? If I had this whole thing to do over again, do you know what I'm signing up for? Another round with this man. And man, I pray that for our church. I pray that for your wife that she'll be able to say that. Your kids that she'll, they'll be able to say that. And for all of our men in the room, that our marriages, our homes would be like this. And I'll just invite you to this last prayer for, for our families and for our men here. For the future of Stonegate, I'd invite you to be praying this: God, make our men, our parents, into great pastors. Amen. Let's pray. As the guys come up, we're going to respond in song this morning, but i want to give you just a second to sit in that and to allow the Spirit of God to impress upon you the things that would be most helpful and to remove the things that would be really non-beneficial for you today. And as the Spirit of God just settles these things over our hearts this morning— I just want to remind our dads in the room that when you hear a message like this, you know what we all ought to feel? I am a failure at this. And do you know what that should do to every one of our hearts? Make us so thankful that Jesus lived a perfect life in place of our very imperfect one. That he died on the cross for our failures in our marriage with our kids. And that he rose from the the grave showing that he can redeem even the worst of things, even the deepest of our failures. So so if you're sitting in that and it lands heavy on you today that you're a failure, and here's what I want you to feel right behind that. This is why grace is so amazing. And so God, I wanna invite you into our men. God, I wanna pray for the men in the room in our church. God, for those that are single, that you would be growing them into great pastors. And for those who are married, God, that, that, that you would like today start shaping them into shepherds, spiritual shepherds, overseers, pastors of their home. God, will you help them in this? Will you help us in this? God, we, we tell you that we, are, we need you. We are dependent upon you. That, that we need you to do a special work in us to move us there. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate church.com.